1: Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues.
0: Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, WTIC-FM, and WTIC.com. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning, and we are pleased to be joined by John Erlinghauser. He is the Advocacy and Community Outreach Director for the AARP in Connecticut. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Aaron. Great to be with you. When you think about AARP, you probably think about issues related to seniors, but it seems your organization has evolved over the years to tackle a lot of consumer advocacy issues that affect everyone.
1: Yeah, I would say we're probably the largest consumer advocacy organization in the state of Connecticut. We have over 600,000 members age 50 and up, and we not only care about them, but we care about their children and grandchildren and parents as well. So uh, yeah, we really uh, uh, put a lot out in terms of consumer issues around affordable utilities, financial security, retirement savings, and then the usual caregiving, home and community-based care. So I would say you're Right on the money, Aaron.
0: So it's coming down to the wire at the state capitol, about a week and a half left in the legislative session. And one of the big issues has been for months now, the Medicare savings program. Lawmakers still looking to figure out exactly how they're going to fund it. What are you hearing?
1: Well, so the good news is there is a recognition that this program needs to be fixed, because what people should understand is that this program was a compromise from several years ago, bipartisan in nature that, Eliminated the Connecticut prescription drug program. Formerly, you know, we had the program called compace that was a state funded program. The Medicare savings program was a way to tap in the federal dollars, increase benefits, and decrease the cost of the state of Connecticut. And, you know, my own mother was on the program, so it was a tremendous benefit to her and a cost savings to the state. So last year's budget agreement put in a significant cut into the program that affected the majority of the people. And the notion was that this is okay because we have the most generous Medicare savings program in the country. But the part of the story they didn't tell people was that that was only because we did away with a much more costly benefit to the state of Connecticut in compase. Um, The good news is both Democrats and Republicans recognize the benefit of the program now with the outcry from the public. Both Republican and Democratic budgets have degrees of fixes in them. So the question is, how much do they fix the program? uh, And and how much will that cost? And are they able to come to an agreement to fix that and the larger $200 million shortfall in the state budget?
0: With income tax revenues surging, too, that must give you some degree of optimism beyond that, right?
1: Right. You know, with with the Medicare Savings Program and the other programs that we work on, like the Connecticut Home Care Program and the Alzheimer's Respite Program, both all of which, you know, support our caregiving priorities, uh, you know, there is a lot of encouragement, right? You know, but... You have to be careful as well because, you know, we have a surge in revenues. Is that going to last? Do we want to open the floodgates again? And we don't want to do things to fix one program that are going to harm other more just as useful and and important benefits and programs like the home care program and the Alzheimer's respite. So, you know, it would behoove everybody to be very diligent in terms of how they spend the revenue uh, in terms of what cuts they might need to make and and, and what programs they want to make whole again. So, you know, we're hopeful uh, and encouraged by the activity and, and hopeful that by May 9th they can get this done.
0: Do you think lawmakers were surprised at all over the outcry when the cuts to the Medicare savings program were part of the budget agreement?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people were given the impression that we have this great very generous benefit, you know, the most generous Medicare savings program in, in the country. And yet a lot of them didn't have the knowledge of the historical reference to how we got to this point. You know, I, I've been with ARP 15 years, worked on the Compass program, saw the uh, introduction of the Medicare Part D benefit and how that impacted our state program. And then we worked with, you know, legislators when there were, fiscal problems in the past to say how can we you know help contribute to the solution of the state's budget problems and not you know continue to create a problem and we worked very hard arp to come up with the solution that would increase benefits and yet really decrease costs so i don't think they had how much of a concept there were you know and how, what level of to, to the degree that people were dependent on this program not only for prescription drug coverage but also for paying Medicare premiums, you know, and that it really went into a level of people that, that was very broad and, and th- throughout the, the state. And I think that's why the outcry was listened to. I mean, it impacted rural residents, urban residents, re, you know, middle class, lower middle class, poor. And, and so that, you know, is where it seemed to bring everybody together and recognize that this needed to be taken care of.
0: You also mentioned home care, and it seems when you're talking about home care, it's designed to help reduce costs by keeping people out of nursing homes.
1: You know, that's the irony, iron, Aaron, because the Connecticut Home Care Program from the, for the Elders was started in a Republican administration um, the, of Governor Roland to literally reduce costs. was the primary driver. It was to reduce Medicaid spending on institutional care and and a a, by, a byproduct benefit of that was getting people to live in the most appropriate least restrictive setting of their choice which more times than not is home and community based care and that was the point of the program now you know i can speak from experience my mother was on the home care program for elders she had alzheimers and if in fact she wasn't on that program for a year and the state put out $17,000 worth of a, a benefit which by the way got paid back from her estate so the total cost to the state of Connecticut for my mother's care was $0. She would have been in a nursing home at about $60,000 a year. So that's just one example of the cost savings in the program. And yet, over the last several years, we've seen a copay added to the program of, of, of a significant amount which comes out of your existing income, you know, and there are not no expenses to you when you're on the home care program. You still have your, you know, utility bills, your food costs, supplemental care that you might need, prescription drug costs. There are a large amount of -of out-of-pocket expenses. And yet, not only that, they closed the first level of the program, which was meant to get kind of the low-hanging fruit. People that just have a certain degree of care needed, Not enough to be institutionalized, but really to give them support so that they don't become, you know, more acute in their needs. That level of programming is now closed. And now there's a limitation on the number of people that can go into the more needs program, level two. And so the program is basically almost on decimation. And, you know, when we work on things, and and I tried to use the uh, the Medicare Savings Program as an example, you know, we're not screaming— we just want our benefits. We don't want to be a part of the solution. You know, we've worked to try to find solutions to contribute to the problems that the state finds itself in financially. But how much can one vulnerable population continue to to give? I mean, we we're experiencing the cuts to the Medicare Savings Program, just a copay on the med- on the home care program, an increase in the copay, a closing of level one of the program, and a limitation in the amount of people that can go into level two of the program. It's at the point where the whole intent of the program, home and community-based care setting and cost savings, is almost out the window. It's all counterintuitive, um, and we're working to ensure that no much, no, nothing more happens with these programs that really help people and help contribute to saving money for the state of Connecticut. It seems the
0: consensus is there among legislative leaders to keep the medicare savings program intact is that same consensus there for home care
1: i will say there is a tremendous amount of bipartisan support for these programs it's a drumbeat that we have you know everybody got in the bandwagon when came to the medicare savings program aarp has kind of been the leader working with our champions both democrats and republicans on the home care program to kind of stop the you know bleeding to the program um and then you know hopefully as time moves on we can kind of Reevaluate whether or not the state's saving any money with these cuts are actually costing money. So we're gonna we're gonna start working towards getting this program restored to what it was intended to be, um, you know. So we'll take it time by time, little by little over time. And uh, we do believe we have a lot of support for for the program. So uh, you know, we're gonna continue.
0: One other issue that hasn't received a lot of press, from what I've seen, is the matter of landline telephones and communications companies wanting to kind of phase them out
1: yeah so in connecticut we have the phone company which is primarily uh, uh frontier and and with one exception the traditional phones in the town of greenwich connecticut um i'm not sure you have any greenwich listeners but hopefully you do um they're served by verizon but in the state of connecticut frontier services the traditional landline telephone and there's you know anywhere from 260,000 to 300,000 people people who still rely on that traditional phone line. And, you know, they rely on it and they rely on the protections that go along with that. And those protections are things like the right to have a phone, uh, the right to quality service, uh, and the right to affordable service. And what the phone company is trying to do is remove those protections from state statutes. And, and the justification is that we have too much competition from cable companies, We have too much competition from cellular. Well, you know, I live in Seymour, Connecticut, in a very rural part of the state. When you go into my condominium complex, I lose all cell phone coverage. If I were older on a a fixed income, I would have no alternative for a phone other than the phone company's affordable phone. Why? Because I wouldn't be able to get a phone from the cable company as just a phone. I'd have to get an expensive bundle of options that included high-speed internet and cable channels that I might not need and probably could not afford. And so, you know, those protections are in there for, for a point. Now, there is no question the number of people using that landline phone is dropping, and significantly over the years. Last time we had to fight this fight against AT&T, when they ran the incumbent phone company, it was a much more significant number of people. Our, our position is this. Before the state of Connecticut determines doing this, because it's not only going to affect older people and rural people and people with low incomes. It's going to impact small businesses and public safety professionals as well who rely on that network for 911 and other things. They should really have regulators do an investigation about who this is going to impact and how and then recommend to the legislature some solutions so we have a transition plan on how to ensure that the people that are impacted are impacted in the very most minimal way, doing it the way they're talking about doing it, and just blindly deregulating the network, you know, is is remarkable to me. Um, in fact, you know, one of the things that's a sticking point is is the requirement that there is a quality of service that Frontier maintain the phone network, and they say, well, you know, when AT and T owned the network. They had other products they wanted people to go on to. So they had, you know, an incentive to kind of downplay the old network because they had wireless and they had digital. Frontier only has their network. The problem with that is there's no guarantee that they're going to maintain the network and the level of financial support for the network because they have all kinds of operations that are in trouble across the country. Connecticut's operation for Frontier is quite profitable. We know that because they're regulated. But if they take the money to support our network and use it to prop up failing operations around the rest of the country, where does that put us? So we think it's important to take the approach that we're recommending, and not just blindly do this. So we'll see. It's it's out there. It came out. The bill came out of committee, um, and it's on the Senate calendar. And uh, we're going to do everything we can to defeat it. You
0: and I both lived through the October nor'easter of 2011, and during a prolonged power outage, it seems people with the traditional copper pair landline were more likely to have service than than sell and customers.
1: Number one, because there's a good hardened network. Number two, because there is a requirement that that they maintain it and maintain it properly. And number three, if you did lose it, there is a, a right to restoration and a commitment that they have to make under regulation to uh, prompt and, and speedy restoration. So, you know, Think about that. Those are the things that are going to go away. And, uh, you know, if you are in those rural areas like I am where you can't get cell coverage or you can't afford an alternative, think about what would happen if you lose this option. So we're, we're, we're not saying we want to be able to, you know, call Sarah up down at the general store for the rest of our lives, you know, to be able to be connected to somebody. But what we are saying is that, you know, let's let's really figure out who this is going to impact and how let's set up a transition plan for the next maybe five years or whatever. Let's have the legislature vote on that, you know, after an investigation by regulators who are the experts, not not just blindly uh, alleviate Frontier of their. Uh, obligations to our customers in Connecticut. And as I say, this is a couple of hundred thousand people or more that are impacted.
0: You're listening to Face Connecticut. We're talking to John Erlinghauser. He is Advocacy and Community Outreach Director for AARP in Connecticut. Another topic that has received some play this legislative session is earned family and medical leave.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is very, very important um, because we have over 450,000 unpaid caregivers in the state of Connecticut. I, I was one of them. I lived with my mother. She had Alzheimer's. I was her primary caregiver. And I was very lucky that I worked for AARP at the time because they were very supportive of their staff um, to be able to be caregivers, support sick ch- children or, or ailing parents. And so I was able to take the time I needed to support my mother's care, take her to medical appointments and, and the like. Many people are not. In fact, most people are not in that position. Uh, you know. And, and you shouldn't have to be able to choose between your job and career and caring for a loved one in need. So for that reason, we're very committed to earn medical leave for people. And I think the earn part is a very critical piece to stress because we're not proposing anything that is going to cost employers a dime. This is an insurance program that will be paid for by premiums, paid by the employees, that they earn over the the lifetime of of work that they do for the company and allows you to take that leave as a credit when you need it. And so, you know, this is being misrepresented by a lot of opponents, but but the fact of the matter is all you have to look at is an insurance program and understand how this is going to work and how it won't cost employers a dime. So would this be paid for through payroll taxes? It would be a, a, a payroll tax. And I think it's something like a half of percent of your pay each pay period. Uh, is what the proposal is now. So it's a very nominal charge, and it's set up. Uh, I know actuaries have gone through to make sure that it's actuarially sound, so that you know the amount of of payroll that's going in um, is is enough to be able to support the program. But once again, I, I you know you have to think of it as an insurance program because you know you don't go out and uh, buy homeowners insurance when your house is on fire, right? Or you don't buy automobile insurance when you have a car accident. You have to buy and pay the premiums. And when you need the coverage, it's there for you. And not everybody will take advantage of the coverage, but many people will. And, you know, the interesting thing is one of the arguments that businesses will make against this as well, 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 it's not going to cost me anything, anything for the premiums. But I have to take care of and replace the worker who's not there when they're on this leave. And that's an expense to me. But the fact of the matter is they already have to do that because we have family medical leave. It's just family medical leave without pay for the individuals that need and take the family medical leave. So, you know, that's not really an argument that holds too much water. But, you know, opponents are trying to do anything to kind of derail this. And, uh, you know, we're going to do whatever we can to get the truth out there.
0: Consumer advocates say one of the best things you can do to protect yourself from identity theft is to freeze your credit if you're not going to be applying for a mortgage or a car loan anytime soon. But in Connecticut, you have to pay the credit bureaus to do that, and AARP is among the groups seeking to change that.
1: Absolutely, we, uh, you know, were amazed at at after the Equifax fax breach, you know, how big that was and how many people were impacted. And, and you brought up fraud and we work on a fraud prevention program in Connecticut called the Fraud Watch Network. We give presentations all over the state with our our trained volunteers to explain to them about fraud and how to protect themselves against fraud. One of the interesting things is that, you know, there, there came the notion through one of these seminars of about how, you know, it costs you dollars every time you want to put a credit freeze for each one of the credit reporting agencies. And there's an expense with having that freeze removed. And for most part, people are putting these freezes on for things that happened outside of their own control. So, you know, why should they have to pay that added expense to have this done? So, you know, AARP uh, reached out to uh, the Attorney General George Jepsen and, and to the chairs of the Banks Committee in Connecticut uh, to... You know, put forth legislation that would remove the costs associated with um, getting that freeze put on and removed from your credit. We think it's very important and it, it plays right into what we believe is in, uh, an important program, and that's our Fraud Watch Network. So, you know, this is something near and dear to AARP's heart and right in the DNA of our mission. Is there strong opposition to this? You know, it's amazing because. There, you know, were some provisions of the legislation that were not directly related to the overall legislation. And so I think some committee members um, voiced opposition to those provisions of the bill, but not the bill. So right now what's going on in negotiations to try to get everybody on board, I'm confident we can get to a point by the end of the legislative session on May 9th with a compromise that will Bring everybody on, and we should be able to pass this without opposition. You know, Democrats and Republicans both called for this legislation, and I was stunned with how many legislators you know, intelligent, professional, um you know, well thought through people that I've talked to who say, "Yeah, you know, I, I had my identity stolen, and you know, I had to do this, and you know, of course, you know, I, I want this." You know, I. I didn't even have to ask a lot of legislators for this legislation. They wanted to have it introduced themselves because they either personally saw the impact or had constituents that have been impacted by the breaches and, and complained about the expenses associated with protecting themselves against something that's that, that was done through no fault of their own. So uh, I'm hopeful that we'll get it done. I, I'm quite confident that we will. Uh, but, you know, as I say, we're getting down to that last uh, week and a half, as you know.
0: Going back to legislation passed in 2016 – Efforts are underway to get a retirement security authority backed by the state off the ground as another alternative for folks to help save for retirement.
1: Right. So the intent of the retirement security authority is to uh, take the 600,000 people in the state of Connecticut who have no way to save for retirement through pensions or 401ks or another vehicle through payroll deduction and induce savings into private IRA accounts, private Roth IRA accounts facilitated by this authority. So, in other words, the state will never see or get any of your money. Your employer will not manage your money, but money will be deducted from your pay and it'll go directly into a Roth IRA account that you choose. And it is mandatory for businesses who don't offer a retirement savings option of any kind to participate employees would automatically be enrolled and would have the ability to opt out of it. So it's not mandatory for employees. They can opt out. Um, But what I will say is people are 15 times more likely to save for retirement if they can do it through payroll at work. Less than 5% of the people in this country walk into a bank and open an IRA account. Less than 5%. And these are products that have been around since the 1970s. So the notion of more education is going to get people to do that is just simply not true. The inertia works against it. People that we're talking about are making fifty thousand dollars a year or less. A significant portion of them who are making twenty-five thousand dollars a year or less. So it's a it's a beneficial program. I'm happy to report the program is is making a lot of progress. Uh, you know, they're in the process right now of hiring an executive director. That should be done uh, any any day now after this program airs. And by January 1st of 2019, so, you know, a few months uh, away, the first accounts should be up and running and, and savings will happen. Now, I want people to understand not every business that is under the requirement of this legislation will have to start doing this in January. The authority is going to reach out to a small number of businesses. In Oregon, for example, they reached out to a dozen businesses that had five or 10 or 12 employees to be the guinea pigs to work through the kinks to see how that went, to see if changes were needed. It went amazingly well. In fact, the response to the program was not only great by the employees, it was met with great support from the employers. And then they've kind of extended that out and are slowly – enrolling people. In fact, their goal is over the next several years to have everybody required to participate under the law in the system. So this is not going to happen overnight and the state is not going to, I don't want businesses out there to think, oh my God, what am I going to do? What do I have to know? But we're going to embark on a great education outreach campaign at ARP with our volunteers, through the media, and through uh, presentations and public events, a real education process for not only the public, but for the businesses that uh, potentially will be participating in it.
0: He is John Erlinghauser, Advocacy and Community Outreach Director for the AARP in Connecticut. Thanks so much for joining us this morning.
1: Aaron, it was great to be with you.
0: Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend.
1: Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio